You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we would like to welcome you. We are so glad that you're here this morning to join us for our Christmas service. Uh, we as a church want to, to, to let you know that um, the story of Jesus Christ and his incarnation and all that he brings into our lives and into our world is relevant uh, for every day of our lives. Throughout the year, we gather around the one Jesus Christ every time that we gather. And uh, so if you're here because uh, you came with a family member or as a guest or a neighbor invited you perhaps, we would love to invite the warm welcome to return to explore faith, the Christian faith with us. Uh, We'd love for you to call this church uh, your home and to belong here. And uh, so if you're a guest this morning, please know that the welcome is extended beyond uh, the Christmas service. But we are so glad that you're here. Let's just dive uh, right into it, shall we? Luke tells us that as Christ was making his appearance into this world and onto the scene, that in the same region, shepherds were watching over their flock by night. And an angel or a messenger of the Lord uh, appears to them in radiant glory. It tells us that this glory shines, this glorious light shines all around them. Now, as we read that, it's probably sort of difficult to imagine what the scene would have been like. I'm sure anyone that's heard this story before has, has given pause and at least just one moment to try to imagine what this scene would have looked like. And uh, really, the encouragement is to allow our imaginations to continue to, to run wild. And it's an important question what the scene would have looked like, but an equally important question to, to think through and, um, is to imagine why. Why this glorious light? What brought such brilliance onto the scene? Was it the angel's appearance? Was it his stature? Was it his status in heaven and all that that represented? Why this light that enraptures these shepherds? And I would argue this morning that it had something to do with the message. 
that this glorious light had something to do more specifically with the good news. Verses 10 through 11, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who's Christ the Lord. Christ is Lord. So what was so glorious is the announcement that our Savior had come, that God had taken on human form, becoming a man, becoming a child, becoming an infant even, to, to share in our humanity and, and our struggle and to be for us and to us a Savior. And so what happens when this, what happens uh, at, at the sound of this, this good news of great joy for all people, well, Luke records, suddenly, unexpectedly, the hosts of heaven break out in praise. This, this silent, unassuming night breaks open with emotion and song. Bang. But you see, for us, who are familiar with the story, if we were to be honest, the story loses its bang. The temptation for us, especially those of us who are familiar with this story, is to begin to sentimentalize this, to see its cuteness, to see the traditions and leave it at that. We begin to miss the radiant glory of this message, the kind that encompassed these shepherds and filled them with holy fear the kind that caused the heavenly host to break out in song. Simply put, we lose the wonder of the story. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he put it this way, we've become so accustomed to the idea of divine love and of God's coming at Christmas that we no longer feel that shiver of fear that God's coming should arouse in us. We're indifferent to the message taking only the pleasant and the agreeable out of it and forgetting the serious aspect that the God of this world draws near to the people of our little earth. See, Advent not only prepares us to see the unexpected, like to peer into a manger and see the king of the universe in a feeding trough, but Advent is preparation for us to personally experience the unexpected, for God to break into our mundane patterns of life and to move us to strike us at the core of our being. Simply put, when God draws near, his presence is felt. When God draws near to the people of our little earth, his presence is felt. For six days, seven hours a day, sitting in a plain chair, controversial artist Marina Abramovic welcomed strangers at the Museum of Modern Art to sit down and join her for one of her most well-known art installments called The Artist is Present. And one by one, men and women would come and sit across from her. And without words, or really any kind of movement, they would simply stare into each other's eyes for as long as the other person wanted. Now, try to imagine this scene. Just simply stare, sitting across from one another, uncomfortably close, staring into one another's eyes. And over the course of a couple months, this involved over 1,500 people. And what was so remarkable was that of all the people who sat across from her, most of them became overwhelmed and began to cry, sometimes only after just a matter of a couple minutes. 
Others experienced elation and joy and smiles. Others experienced quiet peace. But here's the thing. They all, every single one of them, experienced something. This was someone that was with them. And just even for this split moment, this was someone that was there dedicated to them. And as this little taste of presence was being experienced, all of the suppressed sadness and all of the suppressed emotions began to well up. Portions of their hearts were activated. See, we, we live in the digital age where it is very hard to get someone to be present with us. It's difficult to even get someone to look us in the eye. But once in a while, we'll meet someone that looks us in the eye and all of a sudden it becomes uncomfortable. We'll meet someone where it feels like they are peering into our soul and we want to look away. Because we know that there's some sort of connection happening, whether they can or cannot see into our soul, that there's some sort of vulnerable connection occurring just as we peer into each other's eyes for these split moments. The level of vulnerability of staring into each other's eyes created this intimate personal experience that for many of these people they had never felt before. And as people were interviewed, as they were coming out of this sort of social artistic experiment, they were asked, you know, why this, this emotional response? Why did you cry? Why, why this joy? Why did you respond this way? And many said that it was someone sharing in their humanity that struck them at their core. It was, it was the fact that someone for just a split moment could relate. Someone just for a split moment saw me. Someone just for a split moment just recognized my life and my struggle. See, presence is powerful. It's moving. And Luke records that when the God of the universe draws near to be present with us, to share in our humanity, to share in our suffering, to share in our pain, to be experienced personally by mankind, as Luke records, the men and women are struck to their core. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to briefly explore some of the ways that these men and women in our passage are impacted by Jesus' appearance and how they responded. If you're taking notes, the first group of people we'll look at is the shepherds. Verses 15 through 16. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. So what makes these shepherds so remarkable? Why, why did they get airtime in the Bible for us to be talking about thousands of years later? They went straight to Bethlehem to look into the things that had been told them. They simply make haste to come and see. There's no, well, you know, we've got these sheep to tend to. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but, you know, Christmas season is sort of a busy season for us as shepherds, you know. And, uh, you know, we've got kids, we've got presents, and we've got the events, and we have the, these things going on. I'm, I'm sort of in a busy moment in my life right now. When, I, when I'm ready, and, you know, when the time is right, and when I feel really compelled, and, you know, just in that next season of life, then I'll come. No, they'd make haste and come and see. No hesitation. I love it. N nothing recorded as to like what happened to these sheep. <laughs> they just wandered off. 
Jesus is the better good shepherd, by the way. So why? Because this is worth it. This was worth a look. You see, the claims of Christianity are outrageous and otherworldly. The divine takes on flesh. The virgin birth. This is crazy. But it shouldn't be intriguing. Uh, in the early years of our church, Michelle and I did quite a few uh, premarital counseling sessions. Uh, there seemed to be a couple of years where it seemed like everyone uh, was getting married. And then, as you could see up here, then they all started having babies. Uh, there was a season where, I mean, it, was, it seemed like uh, one after another, people were getting married. And so we, we, we sat down with a lot of couples. And I remember, I'll never forget this couple that sat down in our living room across from us. And this young woman proceeded to tell me that she was a virgin. And um, I was shocked. Now, don't jump to conclusions. Here's why I was shocked. She was a biological mother. Not of just one child, but two. And... There was a certain moment where I was like, please, no, never mind, please do not explain. <laughs> and to this day, the intrigue is killing me. <laughs> like, I want to know, but I don't want to know sort of thing. Sorry, kids, if you're in here. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> All that to say is at least be intrigued. Uh, moving on. <laughs> I, that wasn't in my notes, and I shouldn't have gone there, too, by the way. But think about it. I mean, honestly, think about it. The divine takes on flesh. The virgin birth. The fact that, that, that God looked upon the broken and hurting state of humanity, a humanity, by the way, that has continued to rebel against him. And rather than indifference... Or simply frustration, God was moved in love and compassion so deeply that he stepped into our world, stepped into our suffering in order to save us through Jesus' perfect life, his atoning death, and his powerful resurrection. That's quite the claim. And that's the claim that deserves all of us to look into. And so the shepherds make haste. Now this is interesting, as we take a survey of the Gospels, we look and see Herod and all of his power and pomp seemed to be too great to come see himself. So he sends the wise men. Go, you go check it out. You come back and tell me what you see. We, we, we read also that the chief, uh, the chief priests or the religious leaders tell the wise men the same thing. Yeah, there's something in the scriptures about Bethlehem. Why don't you go check, check it out? Take a look. So the religious leaders were too busy doing, I don't know, religious things to come check it out. But the shepherds make haste and go to crouch down and to peer into the manger. Now, this is interesting because the shepherds were the ones that didn't fit. The shepherds were the ones that shouldn't fit in this narrative. They were not the elites. Shepherds are not good for the Christian brand. But here they are. And it's as if to show us that shepherds were the only ones that were humble enough to acknowledge what the coming of Jesus Christ actually meant. It was as if Luke is telling us that the shepherds were the only ones humble enough to receive their king in a manger. In the early 60s, there was a race to get to space. Now, America holds the claim that we got to the moon first, but what we forget, we did not make it into space first. That was Russia. And one of the early astronauts named Yuri Gagarin, he said, it's, it's at least attributed to him, he said, I flew into space. I didn't see God. I went. I went all the way up there, and there 
was no God. Later, another Soviet leader named uh, Nikita Khrushchev, he said a similar thing. He said, why are you clinging to God? Here, Gagarin flew into space. He didn't see God. He went. I mean, he went up, and there was no God. But here's what we need to remember. It's the claim of Christianity is not if you ascend high enough, you're going to get to God. This is where Christianity stands in contrast from all the other major religions. Islam has its five pillars. Buddhism has its eightfold path. Judaism has its Ten Commandments. And so, the, so the, the idea here is that if you ascend in your goodness, if you ascend in your morality, then you'll reach him. The higher you go in your righteous repertoire, the closer you will get to God, or at least so it's said. But here's the thing, and here's what Yuri Gagarin found out. You try to ascend, and you're going to miss him. You try to ascend to God, and you're going to miss him. And here's why. Because the claim of Christianity is that God descended to us. Not to be found out there, or not to be found at the end of your righteous repertoire, but to be found among us, in mess and all. The writer of Hebrews says, since the children, that's speaking of us, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And so when we're tempted to think to ourselves, I'm the only one that knows this sort of pain right now. There's no one that can associate with the sort of pain I'm experiencing in my life right now. There's no one that knows the depth of hurt of this betrayal. There's no one that can associate with this moment of loneliness in my life. The scripture speaks up and says, no, actually there is. He knows. He knows it well. He's experienced it. Dorothy Sayers would say he has himself gone through the whole of human experience. From the trivial irritations of family life, which you will discover this week at Christmas, and the cramping restrictions of hard work and the lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. He knows. And this is the one that has come for you. The angels declare, for unto you is born this day. Not born in general. Not just born in history. But unto you is born this day a Savior. This is who is in the manger. So whether you receive it or not, I don't know. I don't know. But you have to admit this is too significant of a claim. That means way too much personally to not at least look into it. So what do the shepherds do? They make haste to come and see. It tells us in verse 17, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. So this gets right to the heart of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. In fact, I don't know if I, I could find another passage in Scripture that exemplifies evangelism better than this. They don't wait to be trained. They don't wait to reach some sort of status of Christian. By my calculation, they've been converts for no more than 30 seconds. They simply pass on the account of what they saw and they heard. What God has shown you, he has shown you to share. 
What you've experienced because of Jesus, you have experienced to share. And so we simply pass it on. We simply pass it on. Let's take a look at the second group. All who heard. Now this is an interesting group because we may be familiar with the story and the more that we read through this, the easier it is to gloss over this. Verse 18. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So we don't know exactly who this group of individuals are and how many there are, but apparently by the time the shepherds arrive, there are other people there. Now, we don't know exactly who, this, who these people are. It may be Joseph's uh, family members or extended family that live in Bethlehem or nearby. Perhaps this is the innkeeper that feels horrible about turning away this teen mom who just went into to labor next to a horse trough. We don't know. But by the time they arrive, there are more people there. But these people are simply a nameless onlooker. And so as I'm reading this, I'm thinking to myself, why, why are they not named? Is it because their lives aren't important, their stories aren't important? No. It's almost as if Luke leaves this place in the plot open for you and I to fill it. Think of the connections here. Not those who personally see the angelic hosts, but we are those who hear the message concerning the child. We are those who, like those people, would struggle to believe. We, we aren't those who have seen the glory of heaven with our own eyes, but we are still those who can be filled with wonder. We are still those who can experience awe. We don't know who they are, but what seems to matter is that we know what they experience when they hear this message of Jesus Christ. It tells us that they're filled with wonder. Eugene Peterson once said that wonder is the only adequate launching pad for this fullness, this wholeness of human life. Once a year, each Christmas, for, for, for just a few days at least, we and millions of our neighbors turn aside from our preoccupation with life reduced to biology or economics or psychology and join together in a community of wonder. This is what we are doing today. We are joining together in a community of wonder, of amazement, of awe. The wonder keeps us open-eyed, expectant, alive to life that is always more than we can account for, that always exceeds our calculation, the calculations that is always beyond anything that we could ever make. It's a wonder. In a written interview in the mid-50s, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of the Lord of the Rings series and The Hobbit, he was writing about the symbolism of Christianity and redemption that he wove into his stories. It's probably no surprise to you that J.R.R. Tolkien and people like his friend C.S. Lewis, they, they wove these Christian themes into the stories. But it's interesting because he goes on to write in this letter that of all, um, in all of his storytelling, the one topic that he intentionally avoided making any parallel to was the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the birth of Jesus. And he goes on to explain this. He says, the incarnation of God is an infinitely greater thing than anything I would ever dare write. Now imagine this, one of the greatest storytellers of the 20th century says, I don't even dare touch this. This is too good. I will only do it injustice. The historic truth that God took on flesh, entered into our humanity with the sole purpose of rescuing and redeeming and restoring us, is so powerful, is so awe-inspiring that he could not even imagine in his 
extremely creative mind attempting to recreate it in story form. It's as if he was saying, the glory belongs in the manger. The glory belongs in the manger. Nowhere else in the entire world will you find such an awe-inspiring picture of love and sacrifice and care and presence. Emmanuel, God with us. So they're filled with wonder. That leaves us Mary. Third and finally, Mary. Verse 19, but Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in, in her heart. See, for many of us, our heart is the last frontier of our being. We willingly offer our bodies to our lover. We offer our minds to be stretched and molded and utilized for school and work. We as a people are willing to give away pretty much everything that we are, but we guard our hearts. We lock them up and throw away the key. Last Christmas, I gave you my heart. <laughs> the very next day, you went and gave it away. So what am I going to do? I'm going I'm to protect it. I'm going I'm to lock it up. I'm going to guard it. I'm going to close it off from anyone because I don't want to put myself through that. So, get it out. <laughs> they're, they're, it's Christmas. It's cheesy time. So we protect it, we guard it, we close it off. But here's the problem. Here lies the problem. Christ came to occupy it. Christ came to satisfy it. Christ came to save it. To love God is to be vulnerable. To love God with our heart is to be vulnerable in our heart. C.S. Lewis would say to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it's going to change. It won't be broken, don't worry. It'll become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. See, Mary treasures these things in her heart. She treasures this, this message. What this word means is to preserve, to actually like keep alive. It's like if a small animal was wounded, we would treasure it, we would preserve it, we would keep it. And the picture here is Mary tucking these words, the words of this message, away in a safe place in the innermost spaces of her being. Mary is simply opening up herself to the magnitude of this claim of just who Jesus really might be. But it's interesting because she hasn't settled all of the questions. She still ponders. Not all the questions are settled for her. She's still pondering. But this is key. Her heart is open to him. Her heart is open to the message. And so she welcomes these things into her heart, and there within her heart, she begins to ponder them. Now, this is very, very, very interesting to me. Because typically, pondering is something that we associate with cognitive. 
To ponder something is to make connections in our minds. We do our pondering up here and our feeling down here. And I don't mean to, to look too far into this point here, but it, it seems to highlight the necessity to open our hearts to God in the process of belief. To open both our hearts and our minds in this process of faith. There's a philosopher by the name of Charles Taylor who writes about the challenge of faith in our current moment, our modern moment. He describes it as a time where we put a lot of, or extreme amount of confidence in our own intellect. An extreme amount of confidence in our ability to reason through things. And he notes how this is really sort of a historic anomaly. We're special and not in a good way. Because the people before us, the ancient people before us, could not imagine doing something like this. The ancient people did not assume that the human mind had enough wisdom to sit in judgment of God. To them, to them that would be prideful. To them, that would be arrogant. It's only in these modern times that we get the certainty that we have all the resources that we need within here to carry out a trial of God. And so we do this. We, we carry out that trial of God in our minds. Until I can wrap my mind around him, then it must not be true. And some of us here this morning are under the impression that once we are fully convinced in our minds, then and only then will we open up our hearts to God in faith. Settle all my questions. Settle all my doubts. Explain all my reasoning. Once I have all of my, my mental apprehension dealt with, then and only then I will allow God to have my heart. But Mary seems to be doing the very opposite. She ponders these things in her heart. You see, in the, in the wrestle to believe, in the challenge of seeing Christ in the darkness of this world, in the challenge of knowing his presence is with us, we need to make ourselves available to God. We need to open our hearts to God and trust that he will reveal who he is to us. Ernest Hemingway, he once said, the best way to find out that you can trust someone is to trust them. How do I know I'll be able to trust you? Because I trust you. And God proves himself, or and or. How can you know that you can trust God with your heart? Here's the challenge. You offer God your heart. See, Christmas is the reminder that you don't have to grope around in the dark searching for some sort of spiritual connection to the divine. Christmas is the reminder that the divine has come to you bodily. Your call, your challenge, your response is to welcome him, to ponder him, and to treasure him. I'd like to call the worship team up at this point. And what I want to do is I want to conclude by giving just a brief survey once again of, of our characters in, in this story. The shepherds, the onlookers, and Mary. See, the shepherds make haste to draw near and to see. And they respond by, by sharing the good news. They share the good news of what they've experienced. It tells us also that the people who heard this news of Jesus responded in amazement. And Mary welcomes these things into her heart to be treasured. Elation, amazement, and reflection. Well, which one is it? That's not the point. Well, which one's the better one? That's not the point. The point is that every single man and woman in this story is impacted by the presence of Jesus Christ in response. 
And so the question for you today, wherever you may be, the challenge for you this morning is how will you respond? How will you respond to this good news? The good news that God took on flesh, looked at your broken life, and and drew near in the person of Jesus Christ to share in your humanity, to suffer in your place, and to give you new life. How will you respond this morning? There's one way that we can respond together today. This passage actually invites us to take our personal experience, wherever we are, Whatever challenge of faith or experience of belief that we may be facing today, this passage invites us to take that personal experience of hearing or seeing or treasuring and experiencing the wonder of Jesus Christ and actually to turn it into praise. Verse 20, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. So that's what we want to do this morning. The, the, final, the final sermon in our series, Joy to the World, is heaven and nature sing. And what we want to do is we just want to open up the opportunity for us to be that community of wonder and lift up our songs of praise to God who is worthy today. This is an invitation to whoever you are. Again, these, these shepherds, they met Jesus 30 seconds before, and they're telling about him, and they're praising God because what has been revealed through Jesus Christ. No matter where you are, we'd like to welcome you to join in song today. The beautiful, the beautiful thing about praise is often these words, especially these Christmas hymns, will put into words what our hearts may be feeling, but our minds can't connect. To be able to give vent to our hearts, to give vent to that wonder, to give vent to the awe and amazement that Jesus Christ is welling up in our spirits. And so we'd like to invite you to, to worship today. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to introduce our time of communion, and then I'll ask you to stand in just a moment. But if you would, please pray with me. Father, we thank you for...